time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Good morning, St. Louis. It's Hancock and Kelly in for our regular Friday gig. Top of the morning to you, Mr. Hancock. Top of the morning, Michael. We've got an action-packed show coming your way this morning from now until 10 o'clock. Then we'll stick around with the show in the uh, 10 o'clock hour this morning. And we continue our Black History Month series this morning called Living History. Today, Carol introduces us to the first black woman physician to lead the St. Louis Health Department. Talk to me as one who was in private practice. Yeah why you took this leap then not not only to go into government uh city but into politics yeah so you know that would have to start from my upbringing i was raised um in harare zimbabwe the child of a um veteran um who was instrumental in us getting our country's independence my mother um fierce the first flight attendant from then um the newly independent Zimbabwe, um, and always dreamed of, of, of providing for my family. I lost my father at 15 um, very um, suddenly, and, and I remember being a young child thinking, wow, I hope his physician, who was the only person he confided in around his condition, he did not confide in his family, he was divorced from my mother, um, lived in another country from us, so we did not get a chance to say goodbye to him when he died. And I remember that being the spark of I want to be in medicine and I want to be the sort of provider that provides comfort to someone like my father in his final days. Um, I then also lived in a time where HIV was becoming this big, prominent, devastating um, epidemic. And um, in a country that was one of the top three countries for HIV deaths, wiped out our uh, much of our working class created orphans, um, old people taking care of orphans because their parents were dying. And so that was really the reason behind wanting to be a physician, the death of my father, and specifically infectious diseases, watching how HIV devastated my country. Um, and when I started clinical practice, I, I went to Cleveland Clinic. Um, in, in, I spent 10 years in Cleveland, Ohio, training in medicine and in public health. I knew that the best way to impact the communities I care about black and brown communities that have been left behind um, because of systemic and institutional racism, um, that public health was going to be as important as a degree as my medical degree. Um, and so when I met my hunk of a husband during medical school, I followed him to St. Louis. He was doing his, res his residency in pediatrics. Um, and I was at WashU in infectious diseases. And I just didn't see people who looked like me, who cared about the things I cared about. I didn't see academia sort of celebrating people who did what I did in an obvious and, and equitable way. Um, and so I took a contract out of fellowship, a, a, a partial contract with the Veterans Hospital. And that opened my eyes. Seeing all of the social and structural determinants of health that plague our veterans, that are very similar to what I see in North St. Louis and parts of South St. Louis, um, where you see black and brown people um, disproportionately suffering from high blood pressure, diabetes, um, and, and a whole cancers and a host of other things. Um, that's what that's where the emblem for public health really grew. And I was able to lead as the lead HIV clinician at the VA. Um, and then I saw this historic and impassioned woman in our, our mayor, Tashara Jones. I saw um, I saw her come to the fore 
And it was community leaders who, who respected what I was doing in the community. I was educating folks in the community. I was the chair of Fast Track Cities, which brings together community groups and the local government. And they're the ones who said, we would like you to consider being the next director of health. I didn't even know that the application was even out there. And so it was them who really came to me and the rest is history. Once I interviewed with the mayor and realized that her and my vision for public health were in alignment, I knew that it was time for me to step up and to serve. Well, and you can hear the full and complete interview with Carol at KMOX.com. Michael, we've got a busy one today. When we come back, we're going to talk a little politics. Uh, Joe Biden's got a health report. And uh, Nikki Haley announced for president this week. A lot of stuff going on there. Uh, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania has checked himself into a hospital uh, dealing with some mental health issues. Uh, Pretty serious stuff. And the Dominion lawsuit produced uh, a very intriguing court filing yesterday. We're going to talk about that and break it down. Brian Wabi joins us next hour. He's uh, one of the founders of Mardi Gras, Inc., and, yep, it's that weekend in St. Louis for Mardi Gras. We'll get all the details of what's going on. So much more to come on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Hi, it's Matt Pauley. I'm in Jupiter, Florida, covering Cardinal Spring Training. Stay up to date with my reports from Redbirds Camp, mornings and afternoons, and sports open line weeknights from the T.R. Hughes Homes Broadcast Center. Spring training coverage, sponsored in part by Wilkie Window and Door, on your home of the Cardinals, Gangham OX. Hey, good morning, St. Louis. It's Hancock and Kelly. We're going to take you all the way to 10 o'clock. Then we'll be joined by the show. And John, uh, Matt Pauley uh, will join the show as well. He's down in Jupiter, Florida. What a rough assignment that is. How about that? And the pitchers and catchers are already there. The players, uh, many of the players are already there. But the uh, mandatory reporting day is Monday for the fielders and hitters. And, uh, you know, a lot of optimism every spring. And the Cardinals, a lot of questions. But if those questions are answered, yes, this could be a very good team. Well, we influence people for a living, uh, try to get them to make decisions the way that you and I want. Maybe we ought to start on the uh, management around here to have us be assigned to uh, spring training next <laughs> I'm year. For it. I'm for it. Hey, yesterday, the President of the United States, 80 year old Joe Biden, went in for his physical, John. After three hours, uh, a report came back that the President was healthy. He had a lesion removed from his chest that's being checked. Uh, they said his gait was much stiffer, but still, uh, he's still vigorous and. Uh, John, I I hate to admit it, uh, that I've been wrong. I've been saying for several months I didn't think that the president would run for reelect. I now believe that yesterday's uh, physical announcement and um, uh, everything the White House seems to be posturing itself for is going to likely be a reelection announcement from the president here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and uh, I don't know that that's going to be welcome news by a lot of the Democratic establishment out there. I think Biden's not considered to be the best candidate perhaps going into this cycle his approval numbers are not good the wrong track numbers in the country are not good uh, i think he beats donald trump uh, if uh, if we get there in november of 24 but there's some other challenges he's got not just the inflation rate uh, not just his perceived you know age issues with with the electorate but he's got other challenges well the other thing that he has john is if if he's running for re-election i mean it's just a fact of life that 80 year olds uh, you know we we face uh life uh con- you know things that happen to us as we get older so the question then would be uh is he going to be able to fulfill another four years and that question then says what about the vice president exactly. kamala harris probably one of the more unpopular vice presidents we've had in quite some time 
Uh, it doesn't sound like the relationship between her and the current president is that rosy. I agree with that. One might question whether or not the Biden uh, administration would make a change because it would be my belief that whoever runs with Joe Biden would be running almost as a co-president as people will have in the back of their heads that, hey, not only are they voting for Joe Biden, but potentially this person to take over. Well, you know, there have been at times throughout our history, I'm thinking specifically of Ronald Reagan, who was the oldest person to run for president at the time, uh, and his age was an issue. And you would have thought the vice presidential choice would have been an issue in that campaign, but it really didn't in 1984, his reelect. But I do think in this circumstance – the vice president's going to be a hugely important matter to the voters because the assumption, I think, must be if Joe Biden is reelected president, that whoever the vice president is, is going to become president during that four-year period uh, one way or another. And I think having a weaker vice presidential candidate, an unpopular one, is going to be a further drain on Biden's reelection effort. They may have to get rid of her, but that is a tricky, tricky political dance. Well, Joe Biden's not the only person who wants to be president. Nikki Haley has announced this week she's the former U.N. ambassador She uh, for, for Donald Trump. She announced earlier this week she's running for president. John, she was the first minority governor elected in the country. Um, she's making her cases that she should run. Interestingly enough, she didn't get the normal greeting that Donald Trump typically gives to people, which is attack. He's nearly ignored her. Well, Donald Trump wants the field to be as large as it can be. And, you know, that does play to his benefit because he does have such a loyal core of voters. And, you know, the one thing I found interesting about the Haley announcement is she is playing very delicately around dancing around Donald Trump. Uh, She's not going at Donald Trump. She's kind of talking about, you know, mental fitness tests for presidents, uh, but was alluding to Biden. But that same standard would obviously apply to Donald Trump. And it seems to me that if this field gets to be five or six credible candidates, the only chance they have is if they all in unison go at Donald Trump and go at him hard and and take it to him. And the, the approach that Nikki Haley's taking does not indicate that that's going to happen. It's I, I just think you've got to – I think Donald Trump being our nominee would be a disaster for the Republican Party because I don't think he can win a national election. Well, Republicans need to say that, and these candidates need to say that. And that need that message needs to get out there, and if enough Republican voters buy that message – it will work. Yeah, but all guns wound up turning on uh, Donald Trump in the last cycle, John. Uh, John, as we saw, uh, Marco Rubio took his turn and Ted Cruz took his turn. Yep. What we did see was that base of support for Donald Trump, this anti-establishment, this populist, uh, this really non-traditional Republican role stayed solid at about 20 to 25 percent. What makes you think that it's changed? People are still showing up in droves to watch this man act a fool. Uh, He still has a bunch of people supporting him. It seems to me that the same recipe may wind up being successful for him. Well, the difference in 16, of course, is that we hadn't had the experience of four years of Donald Trump in office. The other difference, main difference in 16, is that individual candidates would pop up and they would engage, whether it was uh, Marco Rubio or Chris Christie at one point. Uh, towards the end, of course, you had Ted Cruz. They engaged one at a time, and he was able to kind of swat them away. What I'm suggesting 
is that the entire field, however large it is, needs to speak with one voice that this should not happen. And that might make it. It may not. But it might make a difference. The voice of the Republican Party typically is Fox News. And, John, uh, we find out this week in court filings that uh, Fox News carries a message that at times they don't even believe. And I'm talking about the Dominion voting systems lawsuits, Tucker Carlson, uh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram. I don't even know all the people they have over there, all expressing concerns that the narrative that Donald Trump and his team was putting out about the election being stolen was false. And in fact, now in Discovery, we find out that they even knew it was false, but yet they would still go on TV and push this false narrative. So the legal standard for libel is you have to make knowingly false statements with an intent to damage. And the the pleading that the Dominion lawyers put out yesterday is pretty compelling because they've got, in their own words, between text messages and emails back and forth, uh, things like Sidney Powell is crazy. You'll, you'll remember Sidney Powell was the lawyer that was advancing this theory that the voting systems themselves were corrupt. <laughs> And that they were deleting Trump votes and adding Biden votes. And she and Rudy Giuliani were making that case across the country. And they were going into different state legislatures. trying. Our to own state, state legislature here in Missouri hosted them. And, and, and so all of that being reported on Fox News by these hosts who privately are talking amongst themselves saying that she's crazy. She's a liar. Uh, they didn't believe the election was stolen. And yet they continue to advance that narrative on the air. Now, they've got a powerful First Amendment defense. Uh, but that defense, under the statutes that govern libel law, I think is in some jeopardy. They, I think Dominion, you know, what do I know? But I think Dominion is going to win this lawsuit. And uh, this is a $2 billion lawsuit just against Fox News and Dominion suing Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and, and some other uh, media outlets I, uh, you know, all indications to me are they're going to make out with some money on this deal. Do you think that this erodes the credibility to Fox News viewers that no. the people that are reporting to them don't even believe the stuff they say, that they're pushing a narrative? That's what came out here in this uh, this most recent court filing. And obviously it'll be adjudicated over the next several months. But if that's where this finally gets resolved, do people finally wind up waking up and realizing that Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity don't even believe the nonsense they're spewing? Uh, I doubt it. I, you know, their numbers, they did take a dip around that time. And one of the concerns expressed in this briefing by Dominion is that they were worried about slipping ratings, that they were beginning to lose ratings to Newsmax and OAN to a lesser extent. And so that was driving things. There is and has always been a divide at Fox News between the news bureau, people like Brett Baer. Um, There's only a couple that actually are considered news bureau over there. Well, no, they've got they've got a good, I mean, their news department, you know, I consider it to be a fair and balanced news <laughs> reporting. Right. Uh, but their opinion hosts in the evening are not part of their news division. And there's always been a disconnect there. And this lawsuit really underscores. They talked about uh, trying to get the Hannity um, and Carlson and Ingram talked about getting, getting one of the reporters fired because she posted something saying that the voting system, that there was no evidence that the voting systems were tampered with. She tweeted that and they wanted her fired. Uh, she wasn't fired, but she did delete the tweet. So, you know, all of that, it, it never looks good when you get into somebody's private emails, which is what a lawsuit in uh, 
discovery allows you to do. It, it doesn't look good for anybody. The New York Times has been through it before. Uh, you know, and so it's an embarrassment to Fox News. Will it affect their ratings? I don't think so. So Fox News has billions of dollars. They'll have the money to be able to fight this lawsuit even if they lose in the end. Uh, they probably can sustain yeah, whatever financial I, I blow is coming. But they would be the first domino, and some of these other startup news organizations and individuals such as Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, we may see some people's lives uh, pay some serious consequences for pushing this lie. Yeah, I, although, you know, Powell's defense might be if, if I'm nuts. She, that I, I really thought this was the case. So right. it wasn't knowingly false. The, the libel bar is very high. Legally, uh, news came out yesterday out of Washington D.C. The newly elected senator from Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, who we know had the <clears throat> well-publicized stroke last year during the election campaign, uh, admitted himself into the hospital dealing with, I guess, severe depression. Right. So he apparently has uh, checked himself in for clinical depression. Now, some of this isn't a surprise, John. We know that stroke survivors typically de- deal with. Depression. It also sounds like John Fetterman had been dealing with depression most of his life. I, too, have dealt with depression most of my life. I think it's interesting that a sitting United States senator publicly announced that he had checked himself in to Walter Reed Hospital, uh, stating that he's dealing with depression and mental issues. I think this is a step in the right direction. Uh, well, let's put aside what happens to John Fetterman if he winds up, you know, keeping the Senate seat, because there's there's likely, you know, I don't think the man cares uh, about the Senate right now. Having been in those moments, what you care about is is yourself, and you're just in a place of despair. Uh, the Democrats do control Pennsylvania's governor and would be able to appoint another Democrat there. But I think it's a big step forward that one of the most exclusive members of, of the most exclusive club in the world has come forth and said, yes, depression is real. And so many of us in our own families know people who are dealing with it themselves. Or, or know people who aren't dealing with it right. themselves. And that's the problem. And, you know, you at its, at its extreme, that kind of depression, you know, creates suicidal thoughts and all, any manner of things. The fact that he checked himself in would tell you that he's dealing with a really serious problem here. Yeah. And to make light of it, as some have done. Um, is, well, is and do wrong. we even need and, to say who's it's, doing it? It's, it's Donald a, Trump Jr. and Marjorie Taylor Greene calling them a vegetable. And it's a disservice to people that are struggling with mental health issues out there. There is help. You can get help, and you should get help. And it's easier to get help today than it has ever been in the history of this country. And and I hope John Fetterman's example might help some other people because uh, it's an important thing to do. I got the help. I hope you get the help. And it's a daily struggle for all of us. And, hey, we've got a lot to get through today, man. We've got an action-packed show coming at you. Mardi Gras, John, it's so big here in St. Second Louis. Second biggest in the country. Yeah, we're going to talk about Mardi Gras. We're going to deal with casinos potentially expanding in Missouri. And let's not forget what happened in Ohio. And the news is next on Camel X. Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly, sponsored by Insperity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. Good morning, people of St. Louis and surrounding metropolitan area. It's the Hancock and Kelly Show. You're listening to KMOX Radio right here in St. Louis. Leading right up to your weekend, and a big weekend is in store for all. And it is Mardi Gras weekend in St. Louis, and joining us on the KMOX guest line right now is one of the founders of Mardi Gras. He's the reason we have it here in St. Louis. He started Mardi Gras, Inc. He's none other than Brian Wabi. Mr. Wabi, top of the morning to you, sir. Top of the morning to you, sirs. 
And uh, this is uh, the weekend that you, uh, when you started, uh, how long ago did you start the Mardi Gras? Well, so Mardi Gras has actually been around in St. Louis for 44 years. Um, I've been, we started Mardi Gras Inc. 24 years ago. So I've done this for a long time. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a great tradition for St. Louis. And we are, we're excited to invite more than, I don't know, a few people uh, to Soulard tomorrow for the big parade. we got the mayor's ball tonight. Uh, lots of festivities at Union Station around that. And then tomorrow, uh, 11 o'clock, the Grand Parade, the Bud Light Grand Parade steps off at uh, at 11, right there from Broadway and Shoto, and parades through the Soulard neighborhood. Uh, we got over 80 units in this year's parade, wow. which will be a spectacle in and of itself. And uh, we're just looking forward to, to having a great time with a lot of people and celebrating uh, the, the beginning of Lent. Yeah, no doubt about it. And uh, I'm one of those people who will be stuffing themselves into their tuxedos, hoping it fits this evening going to the ball. That's obviously a paid event, Brian. But uh, yes. tomorrow, most of the events, if not all of the events, are free. Uh, tell us a little bit about what people can do, where they can park, and uh, come down and participate on what's supposed to be a really pretty day. Yeah, it's gonna be beautiful. Um, well, first of all, there are um, there are still tickets available for a couple of the events. We've got Mayor's Ball tonight, uh, Blues Alumni Tent along the parade route tomorrow, a light party tent. Uh, still have a couple of tickets available for that. Folks can get tickets at stlmardigras.org. Um, that's our website. Uh, but yeah, folks, we want folks to come down and have fun. There's plenty of uh, parking not in Soulard, <laughs> so. Uh, you know, park downtown, take a little stroll down the parade route. Um, we, you know, obviously we're encouraging folks to use rideshare, uh, both on the way down here, but more importantly on the way home. We want everybody to go home safely after they may have imbibed just a bit. Uh, I know that's uh, uh, Mike and I. Michael, you and I will not be um, no, no imbibing. We'll no. have Bible no. study instead. Yes, yes, imbibe study. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm actually uh, I'm, I'm a little struggling this morning because uh, I had a little imbibement last night. I've had a little imbibement for the last couple of weeks here at Mardi Gras. <laughs> well, it's always a big lead-up, but, you know, Brian, what, what's incredible about Mardi Gras is not only has it become a St. Louis thing, but it's expanded and, and draws people from all over the region. And this makes quite an economic impact on St. Louis, uh, fills up hotel rooms and, and fills up restaurants, doesn't it? Yeah, no, we were, um, you know, when we did started this thing, um, you know, never thought that it would turn into to what it's become. But it's part of what we do. It's part of St. Louis's. And, you know, we talk about folks around the region. We bring people in from around the country and around the world to to, to celebrate our, our Mardi Gras here in St. Louis, which is, you know, um, one of the biggest uh, pre-Lenten celebrations in, in North America. It's the second and, largest, uh, right? Uh, you know, it depends on the the Bureau of Mardi Gras uh, standards is not really dictates uh, hasn't shipped out the li- the list of the great big, biggest ones. I'd say we're pretty close to the top of the list after New Orleans. Yeah, and who's the Grand Marshal of the parade this year? It's none other than uh, St. Louis SC uh, uh, President and CEO Carolyn Kendall. Well, she is our nice. she's our second Regina. Uh, she was. We've had Rexes and 
one Regina before, and now she's our second. Regina. You know second. who that re- previous Regina was? Uh, I do not. I do. Melissa yeah, I Kelly, do. my own sister, oh, wow. the great was Marshall. the Regina of the uh, Mardi Gras oh, at one impressive. time. That's impressive. Yes. And lots, yeah. of, lots of fun and activities. The, the, you, there's all these tents up. If folks, if, if you've not experienced this before, I mean, it is, it is a party and, uh, and a big one, and it's going to go on. Uh, the mayor's ball tonight, you say, is a paid? You have to just pay money and show up, huh? Is that how that yeah, works? Yeah, no, but the proceeds from that event um, uh, go to the Mardi Gras Foundation, which is our charitable arm. And, uh, and that organization gives back to the Seward neighborhood. You know, this is a, this neighborhood here is a residential neighborhood. I mean, folks think about it as a big place to party, but there are a lot of wonderful people who live here. And what we do with the foundation is give back to the neighborhood. So Mardi Gras is a party with a purpose and we're always trying to put, um, you know, do improvements to the neighborhood. So we've paid for, uh, trees and fencing around the parks and period lighting through the neighborhood. So we're trying to always improve the neighborhood. So we leave it, um, we leave it better than we found it. And Brian uh, Wabi has been our guest. He's been one of the founders of Mardi Gras Inc. Mardi Gras going on this week. Brian, give the website one more time that has all the information that people can get. S-T-L-M-A-R-D-G-R-A-S dot O-R-G. He is Brian Wabi. Happy Mardi Gras. Let the good Happy times roll, my friend. Les les bon temps There you have it. That's, thanks so much, Brian. That's uh, French for let the good times oh. roll. Well, there you go. uh, and it will be that. quite a celebration. You know, it brings in people from all over the area. The hotels get full. Yeah. Uh, you would think, you know, that uh, New Orleans is an economy based on selling alcohol. Yeah. Uh, you know, and here we, we uh, get our little indulgence because, after all, we have the world's largest brewery down in Sioux Well, I'm curious about this mayor's ball thing because I've never been. Yep. And uh, you go all the time, I guess. Well, I haven't been in several years. So but... what's it like? So it's in City Hall. Well, no, it's not in City no, Hall. It's not. been moved out of City Hall oh. since uh, since Mayor Jones uh, has been there. But oh. it's been at, it's at Uni- uh, Union Station. Nice. Uh, and it's uh, it's a full-on ball. You know, women will be in their ball gowns, men will be in their tuxedos. Now, obviously, there's a bit of a Mardi Gras flair to it, but it's a who's who of St. Louis, and uh, I'm going to show up and be one of those who's this week. Well, I've never been a who at the uh, mayor's ball, and I don't think I'm going to be a who this year, but uh, it does sound interesting. Do they have, I guess, music and Music, and- food, uh, uh, you know, and it's just a, a really good time, and they have a nice celebration all leading up tomorrow to tomorrow's parade. Do speeches? Uh, there's, I think there'll be a speech by the mayor uh-huh. uh, and maybe uh, the, the Rex or Regina, in this case, Carolyn Kendall, uh, from St. Louis uh, SC, which, by the way, man, that's just right around the corner. Yeah, what is it? March the uh, 4th is the first game, I think. Yeah, March 4th. Well, you, uh, oh, next, next Saturday. Saturday on the road in Austin, and then March 4th is the first home game here at uh, City Field in St. Louis. That's going to be absolutely fascinating. Hey, before we step away, yeah. we want to tell you that on Southbound 270, uh, uh, where is this, at Manchester, there's a crash uh, before Darty Ferry. The three right-hand lanes have been blocked, so be careful if you're out there. From Manchester to Darty Ferry on southbound Highway 270, it's packed out there. John, when we come back, casinos potentially could grow in the state of Missouri. We'll visit with somebody about it and find out uh, where that might take place and what's next after this on KMOX.
Now, back to Hancock and Kelly, sponsored by Insterity, HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. We have a traffic situation in the St. Louis area. If you're traveling southbound at Highway 270 on Highway 270, starting at about Highway 4064, uh, the traffic is all uh, a mess because of a crash taking place at Darty Ferry. The right three lanes are blocked. Seek alternate routes or uh, just be patient and keep it tuned to KMOX. Indeed, indeed. So the expansion of gaming in Missouri is top of mind in Jefferson City. They're debating sports gambling in Jefferson City. They're debating whether these uh, video slot machines that have popped up across the state, uh, how they should be regulated, if at all. Uh, And there's a proposal now by the Osage Nation to put a casino at the Lake of the Ozarks. Joining us right now is Ron Leone. He's the executive director of the Missouri Petroleum and Convenience Association. And, Ron, you guys are opposing this move. Why? Well, good morning, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, come and talk about this important issue to your listen uh, to your listeners. Uh, a little bit about a background about who I represent, so you kind of understand why we're involved with the issue. So, I'm, I, as you correctly stated, for the past 23 years, I've been the executive director for the Missouri Petroleum and Convenience Association. Uh, we're a statewide trade association created in 1937, and we represent many of the gas stations, convenience stores, and truck stops across the uh, great state of Missouri. Missouri. Um, a, a little bit about the process about the issue that you're talking about with respect to the Osage Nation trying to put a uh, tribal casino down at the lake. Currently, Missouri has no tribal lands or tribal uh, reservations. When I heard that the Osage Nation was looking at putting a casino down at the lake, I met with the, with the chief of the Osage Nation, uh, a nice guy by the name of Chief Standing Bear. This was about a year ago. And he indicated to me that the Osage Nation is looking to uh, purchase land and put uh, not only casinos but related businesses not only at the lake, but they've looked at uh, Cuba on I-44, Cuba, Missouri, and they've also looked up at uh, in the northeast up in the, in the Hannibal area. Now, uh, the process of getting tribal land designation in the state of Missouri, again, there's nothing there now, no tribal lands, no reservations, is a combination of federal and state approval. The tribe, the Osage Nation, applies to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and applies to them seeking approval of tribal land designation in the state of Missouri. Uh, They provide archaeological evidence and things of that nature to show whether or not uh, they have a historical connection to the state of Missouri. We assume that that will be the approval will be given by the BIA at the federal level. And then the second portion, the state portion, is almost exclusively the executive branch. The governor has almost exclusive authority to grant tribal land designation to any Indian tribe. He can grant it, he can say no, or he can say yes with conditions. Now, we're hoping that the governor, uh, when he when he weighs all of the pros and cons of, of what the uh, tribe is looking at down at the lake, uh, that he will not grant their tribal land designation when it comes to uh, them wanting to put a casino down at the lake. Now, as I stated, there is no tribal land at this point in time in the state, but let's assume that they get the tribal land designation from the feds and from the governor, uh, then that piece of property would be considered a sovereign nation within our state. So it literally is a sovereign nation sitting down at the Lake of the Ozarks or at Cuba or up in the northeast, up in the Hannibal area. 
And because they are considered a sovereign nation, they have to comply with federal laws and federal taxes, but they don't have to comply. It's voluntary if they comply with state laws and state taxes, because, again, they are a, a, they are a sovereign nation. And my concern, since I represent gas stations, convenience stores, and truck stops, is when they put up a casino down at the lake, they will also put up ancillary businesses like a truck stop or a tobacco shop or a convenience store. And because they don't have to charge the same taxes as my members have to charge, they will have a massive competitive advantage that will put my members out of business. So, uh, Ron, obviously, uh, I understand the interest of the Petroleum Association. This wouldn't mm-hmm. be unique that uh, that there would potentially be an Indian casino. They have popped up around the country. Mm-hmm. If the governor chooses not to go this way, there's always been a push to expand gaming in Missouri and potentially have a boat at the Lake of the Ozarks or some type of casino at the Lake of the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. If it's not under this Indian reservation plan, what would what would an alternative look like? Well, there's been several bills filed uh, in the legislature, uh, joint resolutions that would require a vote of the people. Uh, Jeff Knight, Representative Jeff Knight, has one in the House, and, and Representative or Senator Justin Brown has one in the Senate. And essentially, what they are proposing is that another casino will be allowed at the lake, a casino that would have to play by all the same rules that all the other existing casinos would have to play by. And so, uh, their theory is if there is going to be a casino down at the lake, uh, they want to have one that plays by the same rules and does not have a competitive advantage either at the casino level or any of the ancillary businesses that are often constructed on tribal lands um, uh, as a result of uh, the casino and expansion of casino. That is Ron Leone. He's the executive director of the Missouri Petroleum and Convenience Association. He is opposing the effort by the Osage Nation to get lands designated to them to in order for them to build casinos and other ancillary businesses. Ron, thanks for joining us. Have yourself a good weekend. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you. So, John, what it was in the early 90s that we had statewide constitutional amendment that uh, the voters uh, yes. voted the in. Riverboat casinos. So, right. They had were, to float on the, on the rivers. One of there. two rivers. You had to be either on the Missouri or the Mississippi that River. It limited the amount of licenses you would have. It did. Uh, it really left out a lot, a great part of the state of Missouri, uh, the Lake of the Ozarks, and more importantly, Springfield, Branson, all of those places that are trying to compete for tourists that are trying to bring in uh, folks have always expressed an interest for casinos. Of course, Branson's doing just fine without a casino. Right, and, but there's been a push to have casinos at the, in Branson as oh, well. Oh, there has for many years. So it, it, been it sounds like we would have another state vote on whether or not we should allow gambling on other rivers, which is kind of a joke because they're not even on a river anymore. Right. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's that's exactly right. It, you know, the when this all passed, I was around back then in the legislature, and I I figured that, you know, when you open this door or crack, um, you know, the the revenue from these things gets to be very compelling for legislators. They love to spend money. They love to have money. This was supposed to, remember, solve all of our education woes in the state now that we've got legalized gambling. It didn't do that. Uh, hasn't done that. It's never going to do that. It's brought an element of crime into the state, in my opinion, and it's, uh, it's ruined a lot of families uh, who get into these gambling addictions and, you know, expanding it, I don't think, is uh, is necessarily in the best interests of the state. Yet, uh, here we go. And, and I, I will say, 
Ron is correct that if you allow one of these Indian gaming casinos in that don't have to pay necessarily state taxes. Yeah, what's it to keep them from putting up a mall? Exactly. They're nothing. Right. The answer to that is nothing. So, but it also is interesting to me. I was educated a little bit there that uh, the discretion of this, once it p- passes the federal uh, standard, really is left up to one individual, the executive branch of uh, the state of Missouri. Something this large and would have this big of an economic impact on the state of Missouri. How is the legislature not involved? Yeah, well, that's all. That's all dictated by federal law, right? And that that goes back. Many, many, many years as we kind of dealt with how to incorporate Native Americans into the federal system of the United States government. And and a lot of – so you look at a state like Oklahoma. The Indian tribes in Oklahoma are multi-billion dollar industries. I mean they are huge. And uh, and there are other places like that around the country. Nevada, Arizona. We, there's so many places. We've not had that in Missouri historically. And, you know, the the bottom line question for me is, is expansion of gambling a good thing, you know, net, net? I, I just don't think it is. Well, I mean, we have gambling. The question is, I'm not sure uh, how much more or if we should expand casino gambling. Uh, but the reality is that sports gambling is happening in almost every state around us. And Missouri is one of the only places that hasn't taken yeah. place. I get that you may have a moral objection against uh, this, but, you know, sometimes the snowball's moving down the hill. Um, and why should Missouri be left out? Yeah, and, and the sports gaming, yeah, you know, that's stuff people do from the privacy of their own home, uh, potentially. I, I worry that the casinos are going to end up with too much influence over how it's done. In Missouri, I hope that's not the case. You've also got this problem of these unregulated uh, gray market yeah. poker machines out there. Thousands of them in the state producing billions of dollars of revenue. And they're not taxed like any other gambling is. They, You know, they f- completely fall outside of the realm of So wait a minute. Oversight. When you see that stuff maybe at a pool hall or a, a gas station and people are playing those, those don't get taxed by the state? They get taxed. Uh, but they don't get taxed into the same way that uh, that the casinos right. get yeah. taxed. And you know, that seems they're wrong. All, they're also not regulated, so it, you know you you're taxed on what you report, right? Uh, you know. Well, and there's so. a gaming commission that regulates the casinos that say Correct. the machines have to pay out at these levels, etc. Right. That uh, currently that wouldn't be the case for this stuff. So lots to keep your eye on in Jefferson City as it relates to gambling. Some of it you may support, some of it you may oppose. Keep it tuned to KMOX. We'll continue to keep you updated. So we have the have you and I haven't spent any time talking about this train derailment in Ohio. No. Uh, this is a massive story that I think has gotten not enough attention. Uh, CBS correspondent Jim Kersula joins us after the news. That's next on KMOX. I'm Dakota Hudson. I'm Jordan Hicks. I'm Cardinals pitcher Jack Flaherty. I'm Tommy Edmond. I'm Cardinals outfielder Jordan Walker. I'm Paul Dion. I'm Woodson Contreras. I'm Adam Wainwright. And you're listening to the voice of the Cardinals, KMOX. Boy, doesn't that feel good to hear those Cardinals? It, yes, it uh, will be less than a month, and uh, we'll have well, we'll have Cardinal baseball here this month on KMOX Week as they'll tomorrow. broadcast Week some spring training games. As we move towards opening day, and John, uh, this horrible train derailment that took place in Ohio reported this morning that it originated from right here in Madison, Illinois, just right across the river. Uh, And boy, it's quite a developing story up in Ohio. Indeed. Joining us to discuss is CBS correspondent Jim Crisula. Uh, Jim, this thing uh, continues to, well, we continue to learn more and more. Uh, Norfolk Southern has taken responsibility. This is going to be costly for them. 
Oh, very much so, fellas. Hi, John. Good morning. Good to talk again. Always good to be on Camo. Actually, a real mess in this town of East Palestine, Ohio. It's about a residence, about 5,000 people there near the Pennsylvania state line. This happened last Friday, this train wreck. As you mentioned, this train originated there in Metro East area of Illinois. They're right across the river from you. And uh, this uh, derailment, we don't know yet what caused the derailment. There was a subsequent explosion of these hazardous chemicals the train was carrying, and then a huge fire, of course. Many people were chased from their homes. They're now back in town, but many, many people remain very skeptical about the safety of the water and the air that they're breathing at this point. Well, of course, the EPA's in there, and they're doing assessments and so forth. It's going to take a while. These these toxic chemicals that are transported by rail, I'm sure it happens every day somewhere in the sure. country. Are they governed by any different set of regulations than, say, you know, a freight car carrying goods and materials like that? They are. But again, in this case, a lot of questions initially as to what the train was carrying and how much did first responders know in terms of what they were dealing with. A lot of these first responders are now very concerned about what they may have been exposed to with this train. Since the derailment, I can tell you residents, many have complained about headaches, irritated eyes, finding their cars and lawns covered in suit, suit um, hazardous chemicals that were spilled from the train apparently have killed thousands of fish in the Ohio River, which is nearby. Residents have been talking about finding dying or sick pets and wildlife. The governor of West Virginia yesterday, Jim Justice, had a news conference with the state health director there and the environmental protection people in West Virginia talking about this plume of chemicals that is now flowing down the Ohio River from this site near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, basically due west of Pittsburgh. And they estimate that today that plume, although it continues to get more diluted as it flows down the Ohio River, should be near the college town of Huntington, West Virginia, today. Yeah, and, you you know, you think about these things. The the rail system in this country is an aging infrastructure. Sure. The the actual tracks themselves, they are the responsibility of the railroads themselves to maintain. Is that Do I have that right? Yes. And And in this case, these tracks obviously are are owned and maintained by the Norfolk Southern Railroad. But we don't know that it, it was the track system that caused the catastrophe, but it could have been. Most certainly. And again, yes, as I say, the cause of this has not been been determined. It it has not been announced, even if they know at this point, which, again, there have been reports that workers, Norfolk Southern workers, had indicated that this train had problems prior to this derailment. There was some kind of a mechanical issue as the train went through Indiana. Some workers, and again, you're getting into, you know, the, the friction that's often there between union workers and and their employer, the company here, Norfolk Southern. But some workers have indicated that they felt that this train was it was too large. It was too long. It was carrying too much weight. And it was, if if you will, just an accident waiting to happen. At least that's been the comments of uh, some workers who obviously want to remain anonymous. Jim Crisula, CBS News reporter, is our guest. And uh, the EPA director is making the rounds on all the national media saying that in fact, people can go back to their houses. They can drink the water if it's approved. Boy, I hope that uh, they've done all the studies here, Jim, to make sure that they're giving proper information here. 
Yeah, and again, because because of all of this, people just remain so, so skeptical. You know, guys, it, it almost reminds you a bit of the Flint water situation. Yeah. And also, I've been covering, I've been in Jackson, Mississippi several times and covering the, the water situation there, too, that they tell people, hey, in both Jackson and Flint, the water's fine. Go ahead, use it. Go ahead and drink it. And people just don't buy that. And that's kind of a, a similar scenario playing out here, again, in this small town in, in extreme eastern Ohio. Well, and the thing to keep in mind, and before we let you go, Jim Crisula, uh this could happen anywhere. I mean, sure. and, and I don't know what the volume of these toxic chemicals is that travels, traverses the country, but it's got to be substantial. And, you know, when you've got an aging infrastructure like that, not to mention the how prone rails could be to some kind of coordinated terrorist attack, God forbid. Sure. Uh, sure. I mean, this is a real problem. I just don't feel like it's getting enough attention. You know, one of the things that caught my eye yesterday, attention, my ear, I guess you would say, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the, the transportation secretary, was talking about this incident in Ohio. And he happened to mention that on average, every year, there are about a thousand or so train derailments in various sizes, shapes and forms, obviously. But uh, again, uh, that, that caught my attention yesterday to hear that. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're always so good, and uh, you're on, on the news, as you always are. Jim Crisula, CBS News, has been our guest. Have yourself a good weekend, Jim. Yeah, you too, guys. Always good to be on at KMOX. Thanks, guys. Yeah, and John, you know, what's what's problematic here is that, you know, uh, you think about September 11th. They told those firefighters, you can go back down there, you're going to be okay. Right. Now they're saying, go ahead and drink this water. Jackson, Mississippi, Detroit. Let's not forget, right here in St. Louis, we had the... Um, the Manhattan Project, where there were chemicals that are strewn all. They Buddy, are I was still, playing. I was playing baseball on those fields with that nuclear yeah, waste under it. But we're still, you know, what six decades later, cleaning yeah. up um, that. So I mean, this is just the start of a long process because cleanup of this type of spills doesn't happen even in a year, five years, ten years. It can take decades, generations well, to I know, fix these problems. I, I, I know a little bit about the trucking industry because I've got some friends in it and the companies that specialize in carrying hazardous materials. And what they have to go through in order to get licensed to transport that stuff is incredible. The security they've got to have in their facilities and so forth. And and you just wonder, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and assume that there were issues with this train, that, that the, the workers know what they're talking about, that it was too long, an accident waiting to happen, what have you. I'm going to assume that that's probably true. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me like you know, if there's a proper role for government regulation, this is it. Because right. you're talking about this thing, as, hor- as horrific as it is and appears to be now, it could have been. So much worse because some of these chemicals, you know, you travel around and uh, it gets stuff gets released into the atmosphere. And this was a small community, but it's a devastated community now. But imagine that happens in a highly populated area. Well, well, and let's be frank, the Ohio River passes through some of the most populated areas in the entire country. So this story is not going to only be with us for the next month or so, but the years and potentially a decade to come. Yeah. And, you know, the. I know the railroads are over, have oversight by the government, and but I just 
my sense is that these kinds of shipments need to have the highest potent possible level of scrutiny on them uh, at the at the risk of losing a whole lot of human lives. Two major sports stories broke yesterday. One related to St. Louis, Tim McCarver, the former yeah. Cardinal uh, catcher, also an announcer here in St. Louis, right there on Bally Sports. And then, of course, Joe Buck's partner for so many years, the voice of baseball, if you will, for so many of us. Uh, passed away yesterday. We'll remember Tim McCarver. And then the greatest of all time, Tiger Woods, reemerges at uh, his own golf tournament out in California this week, John. How about that? Golf is in a really sticky situation with this whole live golf situation going on. They're on the, the tip of the spear, if you will, of the Saudis and others that are trying to take the center of the world away from North America and move it to the Middle East. We're going to talk about it with our own golf expert here in a couple of minutes. But most importantly, Tiger Woods back on the golf course. It's going to be fun to talk about that. Stick around. Hancock and Kelly roll on right here on KMOX. Connect with KMOX on air, online, 1120 AM, 98.7 FM, KMOX.com. Hey, welcome back to the Hancock and Kelly Show. Uh, remember, you can catch Hancock and Kelly. We're going to stick around in the next hour with the show. The show. We come back in the afternoon to visit with Dave Glover's show. The Glover Show. At 3 o'clock, you can catch us there. And then on Sunday mornings, you want to wake up with Hancock and Kelly in your bed, 8.30 on Fox 2, Hancock and Kelly, the you television don't, you show. You wake up with me in your bed, let me just tell you. Uh, well, I, My we, wife doesn't even like waking up with me in bed. <laughs> Joining us on the KMOX guest line is our KMOX golf analyst. He's Dan Reardon. Dan, this is a bigger story than just golf. Uh, Tiger Woods uh, has taken back to the golf course for the first time in three years at a non-major event, also at a time that golf uh, is in quite a situation uh, in fighting this whole Saudi live golf stuff. It's great to have Tiger Woods back out representing the PGA. Yeah, and and I don't think, Michael, but by the way, good morning. I I don't think it's coincidental that he came out this early to play with the uh, the first LIV telecast, over-air telecast, is next week in Mexico. So he, he's sending a message to the golf public saying, uh, which tour do you want to watch? The one that I play on or the one that doesn't has only one player in the top 20. So, you know, his, his company runs the event in L.A. Um, but as I said, I think there were, there's more than one decision to play than uh, than just golf. And by the way, he is on the course. He parred the first, uh, the 10th hole, his first hole of the day. Uh, this is the quickest turnaround he's had since he returned to the tour, 14 hours between the end of his first round and the start of his second and, round. He didn't do that at all last year. Dan, and it's well documented, the the struggles that, that Tigers had, and then, of course, the accident. But it was really compelling yesterday that he showed up, uh, not just as uh, in a symbolic nature. Uh, he's in the hunt here. He was two under at the conclusion of the round yesterday and, and is back at it this morning. He finished with three consecutive birdies at 16, 17, and 18 yesterday to get to two under. Uh, he played the kind of round I think Tiger is going to have to play. He showed plenty of distance off the tee. In fact, his, his tee shot on 11 today measured 318 yards. So he has length. He looks like, in terms of playability, he's a better player, than he, a more complete player, I should say, than he was at this time last year. But yesterday he one putted nine greens until he got to 17. He didn't make a putt outside eight feet. So there were opportunities out there that he could still cash in on. But Tiger is going to be have to be a player that maximizes his strength around the greens in order to be competitive because he won't play enough tournament golf to be sharp 
for for the rest of the game. So he'll struggle with those parts of it. But he had the galleries with him. He had a great grouping with Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas. Everything fit the way it, it was supposed to fit as far as I was concerned. And one of the things I noticed, and, and I saw nobody else mention, and this may seem like a small point, but he has enough confidence in the mobility of that ankle that as opposed to last year when all he could do is lean forward to look at putts and read them, he was squatting down to read all his putts. Now, I'm not saying that makes him a better putter. I'm saying that tells you he has more confidence that that leg is mobile. Dan Reardon is our guest. He's KMOX's golf expert. And, you know, I think one of the concerns at this point, now we're on day two of this four-day tournament, is endurance with Tiger. And how concerned are folks about him making it through the full four days of this tournament? And will his body hold up uh, to continue to produce an excellent round after excellent round? And that's a good point, John. And he said in the uh, in the pre-tournament press conference, first of all, when Mike talked about he's in the hunt, he said he will not play in a tournament from now to the end of his career unless he thinks he has a chance to win. He will not be a ceremonial golfer. But the point about the, the four days, I think, is worth considering. If you remember last year at the first round at Augusta, he limped a lot more than he did yesterday, but he still shot 300 par 69. But at the end of those four days at Augusta, he was in really bad shape when he walked off the course. Now, uh, he picked, again, a good course in that there's only elevation really at the first tee and the 10th tee at uh, Riviera. It's a pretty flat golf course, so there won't be as much stress on his legs going through the four days. But we'll see, John. Like I said, today is the the quickest turnaround. He had to do all the icing and the treatment. Yesterday, he went off at 724 their time on the West Coast. That's a quick turnaround for a guy that's 47 years old and not in the best of physical condition. Well, and it will be great to have Tiger Woods on this weekend on the, on golf. Uh, it's it's good to see the world getting back right. Dan Reardon, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can't wait to have you on as we uh, get ready for the Masters here in a month or so. I'll be there for, I think, my 38th Masters in, uh, in just a month. How awesome is that? And, John, uh, you, that's not the only sports story. Obviously, Tim McCarver passed yesterday, yeah. uh, former Cardinal player, also Cardinal broadcaster, Fox News our Fox uh, Sports broadcaster with our own Joe Buck. Yeah, uh, legendary broadcaster. He's Ford C. Frick member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, we've seen several of those. Jack Buck, one of them. Uh, you know, McCarver's career was unreal, and many consider him to have been the greatest analyst in the history of baseball on television. He did so many World Series, worked a couple of years with Jack Buck, worked a number of years with Joe. I can't remember, 16 or 18 World Series they did together. Here's Tim McCarver in his own words. Spending 18 years with Joe Buck, two years with his dad, game six of the 2011 World Series was the same as game six of the 1991 World Series. Jack Buck said, we'll see you tomorrow night, and Joe Buck said, we'll see you tomorrow night, 20 years later. Yeah, and, and that gives my hair on the back of my neck stands up. Yeah, and McCarver, uh, I'm old enough to remember him as a player, hmm. uh, awesome. as a Cardinal. Even uh, he was traded after the '69 season, but he was part of that World Series winner in 1964 and 1967. He was on the World Series team in '68 that lost to the Detroit Tigers, but uh, it was it was the '64 series, and the Cardinals hadn't won anything since uh, World War II. 
era. Uh, and they get to the uh, World Series against the vaunted New York Yankees. They had that amazing roster in New York. But the Cardinals had Bob Gibson for three, three uh, starts in that series. And Tim McCarver had a phenomenal series in 1964, hit a very important home run in one of the games, a very high batting average in that series. McCarver had a great series. And here's Harry Carey calling that last out of the 1964 World Series. Ready, everybody standing up. The pitch. A high pop foul. McCarver's there. The Cardinals won the pitch. Everybody congratulating everybody. That pretty much <laughs> summed it up. That probably was not the case for the New York Yankees that day. Tim McCarver, uh, gone at age 81. You know, the last few years that he spent in the booth with Dan McLaughlin doing the Cardinal games on ba- Bally Sports, he was in semi-retirement, was Tim McCarver. Uh, but he was quite good up until the end, and they made a really good team in, the, in that broadcast booth. Yeah, and it's another turning of the page, if you will, because having grown up, uh, you know, the prime of my life here in the last couple of years was listening to Joe Buck and Tim McCarver call yeah. the World Series. Yeah. And for the first time, that won't be the case. We just went through a Super Bowl where I didn't hear Joe Buck for the first time in, yeah, it was weird. in decades. And it's just really weird how uh, time moves on and... Uh, and Mr. McCarver, rest in peace. Yeah, he uh, caught two of the greats to ever play the game, Bob Gibson in St. Louis and Steve Carlton in St. Louis and Philadelphia. He was Steve Carlton's designated catcher for many years uh, with the Phillies. And it was just a a tremendous guy by all accounts, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. We're sad to lose Tim McCarver. Michael Kelly and John Hancock have been pleased to have been with you James O'Sullivan behind the board doing his usual bang-up job, and it's the show coming up next on The Voice of St. Louis, KMOX.